So welcome to My Montessori Life, the podcast that holds up a unique lens to contemporary social, cultural, and political issues. Maria Montessori aimed to reform humanity by building a better human being from the start, preparing young children for a life of profound self-determination, empathy, and wisdom, everything to which an advanced civilization should aspire. The podcast's regular hosts are Barbara Isaacs, President-elect of Montessori Europe, and one of the world's leading authorities on Montessori, and David Getman, author of the textbook Basic Montessori and founder of the software firm My Montessori Child, which sponsors this podcast. So, um, welcome to our very first episode. In the first of three podcasts on the theme of feminism, Barbara and David reflect on how Dr. Montessori helped pioneer first-wave feminism in the early 20th century, and how feminist ideals are realized in her educational method. So um, welcome, Barbara and David. Say hi. Thank you for the opportunity, and thank you for inviting me to contribute to these podcasts, David. It's a pleasure. We're, I'm very excited that we're getting started on this. We've been talking about it for a few months now. So um, it's brilliant that we can um, have our very first inaugural uh, recording today. So welcome all, all listeners as well. Um, this will be a regular um, podcast that we will try to put out every few weeks. And then um, we will be changing the topics from time to time. Today's topic is feminism. And we will be exploring feminism um, over the next two podcasts as well with guest speakers who are going to be interviewed by us and we'll discuss their perspectives on the topic as well. So, Barbara, can I ask, first of all, um, feminism was uh, something important for Maria Montessori in her lifetime. Um, I think she'd be considered now to be one of the pioneers of the first wave of feminism as people now see the history of feminism. Um, and that means trying to achieve equal rights in law and in institutions. So I'm hoping that um, we can have a chat about, first of all, how did Montessori um, come to this participation in the first wave of feminism? Um, I know that there were circumstances in her life which um, forced her into promoting women's rights and opportunities. Um, so um, I know that you have some uh, knowledge about this area, if you could share that with us. Well, I think that Montessori felt that she was equal to the boys with whom she experienced school to begin with. She was always keen to study science and could not quite see herself to be destined to become a good wife to somebody. She wanted to achieve something initially, wanting to be an engineer, and then Later, as she came to study biology, she realized that she would be, like to become a doctor. And um, she had to fight to be accepted to the medical school by the University of Rome and uh, was one of the first two women to qualify as doctors in Italy in the early 1890s. So I understand that she started off studying engineering, is that right? She actually got a diploma in engineering yes. before she became interested in the biology of, and preparing but to be a doctor. I think that in her secondary school, she um, kind of followed the path of engineering, but she was in her 
late teens or early 20s when she was accepted to the medical school in Rome. And um, she had to wait for almost a year before the gracious permission from the dean came for her to join the classes. But um, she was discriminated against all along um, during her study because she was not allowed, for example, to do dissection with the men. So uh-huh. she had to go and uh, do the dissection um, on her own. And I believe that she so hated the smell in the mortuary that she began to smoke in order to obliterate the smell, which I think is an interesting anecdote and a personal picture. It gives us, gives us a, a kind of a view of her determination to be able to achieve something. Um, And I think she also had to fight against her father initially because her father wasn't keen for her to become a doctor, even though... Uh, Was was he supportive of her engineering? Um, Um, Because that involved advanced mathematics and all kinds of things which were not typical for women to study at that time. um, I think that the, the engineering route was more accepted because it was... She did that study in her mid and late teens and that has meant that she was still available to be married off and become a mother Um, whereas once she has decided on her medical career um, that kind of conventional route of life for a girl um, seemed to be closed or he found it really really difficult to um, accept that she She was unconventional in her decisions and in her determination. And it has taken the whole of her medical studies for him to accept her and her success. I suppose it was was awkward for the the medical school generally because, for example, as you were mentioning with the cadavers, it was it was considered uh, an impropriety for her to be with naked bodies, even though they were dead bodies, to be with naked bodies and other men at the same time. Is that is that getting to the the, the essence of what, why this was an issue? Yes, I think that was precisely the reason why um, that, that whole idea of um, presumed modesty for women and... Uh, it's, it's such contradiction because women could be abused every single day and exposed to violence by men. But when it came to the study in the medical school, it was not possible. And they had to <laughs> pretend that it was yeah. not appropriate. Uh, yes, it's really interesting how social convention color um, lives in that way. And I think that has colored lives of many women. Uh, to some extent, to this day. Yes, I, I think a lot of um, contemporary women would, would say that the behavior of men hasn't changed all that much. I mean, um, but that the the social mores of what's acceptable in mixed company, so to speak, um, d- has dramatically changed. I always find that in history, the material things hardly change at all, except for technology. Um, whereas what really changes in history are people's um, ideas about what's happening. So I I think that uh, I can see that conditions for women, um, everything from the biology of being a woman and childbearing and 
um, dealing with men in that situation um, are, are pretty much the same as they were, whereas um, people's expectations and ideas about it are, are evolving. Yes, and I, I think that evolution is very important and um, um, certainly women of my generation have benefited hugely, not only from the first wave of feminism in kind of political terms, um, the vigor of the second wave of fem feminism has paved the way for many women in a slightly different way. And I'm sure we will come to discuss that a little bit later on when our guests arrive. But in terms of Montessori, it's really interesting that by the end of the 19th century, in 1898, she was invited to speak uh, about the rights of women in Berlin. And she uh, represented Italy as the forward-looking woman who uh, defends women's rights and the right of women to be paid decent wage for what they have done. And very quickly, she came to champion not only the women, but also the children. So this was an international conference for women's rights um, in, in the, what was it, 1896 or something, uh, around I, the end of the yeah. 1890s. And, and she was, so she was chosen amongst women who were working as professionals in Italy to represent the country at this conference. It is a very interesting time in Italy per se, because Italy only became a republic in the year when Montessori was born in 1870. So mm. they were made very quick cultural move from uh, kingdoms to a republic. And it gave lots of opportunity for women to look for other opportunities for themselves and to express their ideas more freely. Uh, whilst the country was still incredibly Catholic and um, the Catholicism um, kind of permeates through Montessori's writings throughout her life. So her her experience and, and even reputation as a feminist um, was very well formed by the time she finished her medical training. And then I understand that she... Um, became co-director of uh, a, an institution which was addressing the needs of disabled or um, children with with special needs at that time, and that she became quite close to the to her male co-director of that of that institution. Yes, and that I personally believe that that liaison has influenced everything that has happened in her life subsequently because um, they did fall in love, they did have a child together, and the social convention of his family, which was aristocratic, and her family, which was bourgeois, because her father was a civil servant, just did not make it possible for them to marry. And uh. so Montessori had to make a decision. Should she remain a doctor? Or would she like to be, or will she be a mother? And the doctor had one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think we're all grateful for the choice that she made. Although it must have been very hard because she probably had to put her son um, into care or or, or, um, or to with, with relations. I think he was brought up by relations um, outside Rome. And I, I believe she visited regularly 
Um, she was known to him as his aunt, and she ah. only declared her motherhood to him when he was 15 years old. Wow, wow, that's quite a quite a secret to keep for all those years. So I could see how all of this was really powerful in her personal experience of forming a view that, you know, women were really not getting a very fair deal in her time. <laughs> and especially given her own um, insights and emerging understanding of the potential of the human being in the child. Um, so, and of course, she didn't think that was just a potential that applied to the boys. She could see it was a potential that applied to every child. So it must have been something she dealt with, not just intellectually, but she really felt in her heart that this was an unfairness that needed to be addressed. And in her writing, she never, ever distinguishes between boys and girls. She always talks about the child or children as a whole. Um, so for her, um, that whole period of human childhood was a fundamental part of for her preparation for life. It was integral to what the child will become as um, an adult and as a human being. And I really liked the introduction um, to the podcast where you highlighted her wish of um, building a better future for humanity through the child. And I think that early feminism has colored what would have happened um, to her ideas, her thoughts, and how she developed her pedagogy. So you could say that the feminism was actually built into her ambition for the child and her method from the very beginning. So it, was, it wasn't something she came to or, or thought needed to be layered on, but it was actually integral to the whole direction that she took in, in working with children. Yes, I would I would agree with that because she believed very passionately that the new child and the new man or the new person or the new human that she often refers to will be somebody who will be absolutely committed to social justice. And so feminism would have been included in that social justice package um, for her. Um, we needed to look at humanity, not only from the cognitive aspect, but also from the spiritual aspect of the human beings. And in order to be accepting of human beings, we really need to see the spirit of the whole person, irrespective of the gender, because yes. each one, we each contribute something to humanity if we fulfill what she calls our cosmic task. <sighs> I, I think it's probably, without everyone knowing it, um, her approach to early years um, has influenced the way everyone thinks about children in starting in the 20th century and has planted seeds for the next phase of uh, the feminist movement, really, because all women have um, some experience of either having their own children or looking after children. And so everybody would have felt this cultural change in the attitude towards children of being one of cultivating social justice and cultivating um, a sense of equality and fairness and opportunity for everyone. Um, and I think without naming Montessori, um, women of the 20th century probably benefited from that in a profound way because 
her ideas permeated so many other educational philosophies and um, the structuring of early education as it evolved in the 20th century. Yes, without a doubt, she had, she was one of the pioneers of um, early childhood education, but really she was much more than that, than the pioneer. She has really believed passionately that the world needs to change. And the only way to change the world is through the child. Um, she recognized that the 20th century was the century of the child. And we have learned so much about children um, from the time when she set up her first nursery school in 1907. Uh, it was really a fundamental change how we see the children and how we give them a voice. But giving the child a voice was really campaign she carried on throughout her whole life. And she contributed significantly to the discussions about, um, um, which resulted finally in the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, uh, which was published only in 1990. But in fact, she talked about having the Ministry for Children uh, in as early as 1938 and really promoted the idea that the child needs to be recognized as an important element of human evolution and should be given the rights um, of independence and autonomy that have focus on independent thinking is really, really very important. What is so interesting about the first nursery school that she recognized that she created an environment for working women and she wanted the children to be safe so that the women could do the work uh, without having to worry about their children. So she was very conscious of um, the mother's dilemma of the working mother's dilemma, which is something that women of today continue to meet constantly. And that is, um, can I be a good mother as well as somebody who contributes to society in their own right? Um, and So it's quite amazing that her, her, her permeation of um, culture from so many different perspectives with um, ideals that are not only feminist, but humanist, um, looking to the uh, enormous um, need to reform the human condition and the way that we, we um, are with each other, that she did this not only through the children, but also through the, also through the mothers, because, because, because there were opportunities for them to leave their child with someone that who was going to benefit the child, help the child to flourish, and also um, keep the child safe, the mothers felt secure that they could go off and, and become their own human beings as well in, and, full, and, and, be, and, and pursue their own fulfillment. So um, it's, it's amazing that there's this double sides to, to uh, the, a double impact to the um, actions that she was taking. And the whole relationship between the mothers and the teacher and the children in the early uh, Montessori um, nursery schools which were established around in the first decade of the 20th century is really, really interesting because the teacher was to live 
in close proximity of the families so she could experience their lives. And the mothers were expected to go and visit or have a meeting with the teacher once a week so that they could learn about what the children were learning. So she, in a way, tried to engineer um, change of attitude and uh, better attitudes to children in the parents through what the children were doing um, in the nursery. I, I find that in terms of what has happened particularly recently during the lockdown um, and during the pandemic is that the nurseries that have been successful in um, communicating effectively with their settings supported the parents as much through the lockdown as they have supported the children. That dialogue uh, and the need to listen to what the families have been experiencing has been very, very significant. And um, parents have come to suddenly realize that the nursery school is about much more than just teaching the children um, things, that it is a, a social experience and it's a, it has become an integral part of the family, something which was not part of life at the beginning of the 20th century. I think that's right. That the, I mean, we found that through the people who use our software, that they, um, they needed to have a bridge to the parents and the families more intensely than ever before. And um, so uh, we were delighted that they were able to do that and able to form a relationship between the school and the parents, which hadn't really existed before it. I think especially with young parents these days, it was a kind of commercial relationship. There was um, the parents saw that they were consumers of childcare and that they had a kind of contractual, um, the school had a contractual obligation to them to fulfill certain services. Um, whereas I think since the lockdown, parents, as you say, have begun to appreciate that really they have an integral role to play um, in the child's development. And that, that dialogue between the nursery and the family and the child makes for a richer experience for everybody. I think that is... Um, an interesting shift, because when I first started in Montessori 30-something years ago, we were not, the parents never came into the classroom. They never were part of, there was this significant distinction between I'm the teacher, you are the parent, you give me your child and I will look after them because I know what to do rather than we need to get to know your child together because Montessori definitely sees each child as a unique, and that is a trend that we have seen through the 20th century. And beginning to get to know children for who they are is only possible through not only the lens of the teachers, but also the lens of the parents, because after all, they do know them better than anybody else. They may not always admit it, but mm -hmm. they know their children well. Absolutely. I remember when I did my, um, after doing my course, and I did my internship, there was one school I went to um, in South London where they had a foyer and the, the children were delivered by the parents into the foyer and the door into the classroom space was, was closed at all times. It didn't even have a little window so the parents could see in. And so the parents were obligated to drop the child off into the foyer and then disappear um, before the door was opened where the child was then welcomed into the classroom. And the, it's interesting because the, 
if it started with Montessori wanting to integrate the, the mothers particularly into the child's development, and I wonder what happened in the middle of the 20th century that, that then caused that separation. Well, I think that the two world wars have had a significant impact because suddenly women were pulled out from their role as mothers and the builders of the family, and they had to contribute to industry whilst the men were um, working. And that whole um, research that um, John Bowlby did into attachment, which is such an important aspect of children's development about which we talk so much um, these days, and we look at the early experiences of uh, attachment that the child has as predictors of future relationships. Um, now, when he did the research, he, his research found quite clearly that um, the relationship with the mother or the prime carer was vital for the child's development. And the government um, in Britain definitely used it after Second World War to get more women to be at home and became, become the um, kind of carers for the family because, of course, there were not enough jobs for all the women. So um, I always find it ironic that um, such an important piece of research um, has been convoluted to, for the benefit of policy and economy and never really considered from the point of view of the relationship between the mother and the child. And it has really taken until the 1980s for uh, countries to even extend uh, the maternity leave and recognize that the first year of the child's life is so vitally important. And uh, because so much happens in terms of brain development and uh, that needs to be nurtured and the best person to do that is the mother or the prime carer. It doesn't always have to be a woman. It doesn't always have to be a mother. But it needs to be somebody who gives the undivided attention to that child. Yeah, I think I think all parents intuitively know that. Um, and then there's now, um, especially with the young parents that I've met who have children in nurseries these days, um, there's an inherent guilt in in for for the mother in leaving their child at the nursery um they feel like not only a kind of selfish guilt where they might miss something that they wish they hadn't something precious a, a moment um that they wish was um was that they had access to but more importantly than that they feel that they're somehow letting their child down and maybe storing up issues for later that that uh, their child will have to deal with well Yes, there's an ongoing tension between being working mother and being just, not just a mother, but being the person who cares for the child. I'm, I'm experiencing it um, firsthand as my daughter will be going back to work in three weeks' time. And um, I'm seeing her sorrow and her equally her excitement at being able to do the work that she has trained to do, something that gives her the right to be acknowledged um, as a person that contributes to society as somebody in their own right, not as a wife, not as a mother, but as the person who does her job. So um, I don't have an answer to this. Uh, um, I don't. I think that as women have studied more and have demonstrated they can contribute to society, they will not want to relinquish um, 
this autonomy. I mean, you know, having control over your money is a economically it's a fantastic bonus for women. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's I think that's been a true um, uh, for millennia that 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 women who are have independent means have uh, so much more choice about life than women who are dependent upon others for their sustenance. Um, I think you can even think of the wife of Bath and Chaucer as, um, you know, someone who who became who they are because of their means. Yes. So I, 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 I guess there's this, this tension, this is why I say in history, the physical conditions and economics are physical. Um, the physical conditions don't really change. I mean, women um, bear children, women feel a special attachment to their child. Um, and yet, in order to be fulfilled, um, the economy requires a certain devotion, particularly if they go into private industry, where they're expected to become um, the, femi the feminine version of the company man um, and do whatever the company says they need to do. And then there's this you know, inevitable conflict in their minds about it, which um, I don't know how we're ever going to overcome as long as women continue to be the ones who are bearing children. Um, well, there must have been some opposition to Montessori. I mean, it wasn't all um, plain sailing for her. I know that um, there must have been opposition from the church, for example, because Italy being such a Catholic country, and there must have also been political opposition. Uh, I understand that Mussolini um, demanded that the children in all schools wear fascist uniforms um, and make fascist salutes and so on, and that um, Montessori uh, declined. And I, I think this is, again, I find Montessori's life to be a um, series of contradictions. So initially, when Mussolini had invited her to perhaps present her educational approach to the education ministry and to uh, set up Montessori schools in Italy, she was incredibly excited. Um, she was slightly naive about his political ambitions or didn't quite understand them fully. Uh, but very quickly she realized that her vision of the new child, of the new human, who is to some extent a global citizen, somebody who is not attached um, uh, to, the, to the country where they were born, but who is attached to human values, um, has created huge amount of conflict. And she had to leave... Um, she made the decision to leave Italy in the early 1930s. Um, ironically, at that time, she was working uh, with um, a group of Montessori teachers in Barcelona, and that coincided with the Spanish Civil War. So um, suddenly she found herself homeless, not only from Italy, but also homeless from the place where she was working. And it was, it was at this time that... Uh, she has chosen Holland as her home, and she stayed faithful to the Netherlands until her death, where she, where she died. And um, it is quite fitting that um, the Netherlands are the only country in the world which offers opportunity for Montessori schools to operate in the state sector uh, without um, too many conditions. Uh, Yes, her life had so many echoes in so many ways, not just through the education world, but through social change, mm -hmm. um, that it's it, she's truly one of the um, most important 20th century figures, not just intellectually, but also in the 
um, in the evolution of the culture and the politics. I think, I think wasn't she spent some time in London where I, I understand she met Gandhi um, when I she was... So, um... Montessori did her first lecture series in London in 1919, which was about 100 years ago. Uh, but from then on, she came to London regularly and lectured. At the time of the first lectures, the London Borough of Acton was very accepting of her ideas, and the children in Acton primary schools benefited from the principles which underpin uh, the Montessori approach and also use some of the Montessori learning materials. So Montessori, uh, England and London were a really good place for Montessori to continue to visit. And I think it was um, during her lectures in 1933 that she met Gandhi. And this meeting was obviously significant and also linked with her connections with the Theosophical Society, who invited her to give lectures um, in India um, in 1939. And um, she flew to India from Naples. It took five days to travel. Wow. <laughs> um, but she was very excited by this opportunity to use the plane and wrote... Um, of her impressions to her grandchildren who were um, in Holland. Um, she had four grandchildren uh, by then. And she, the interesting thing of tragedy or the gift to us, I don't know which way, it depends on how you look at it. Um, she was in India when Second World War was declared. And because she was Italian, she became an alien. And so they, both she and Mario were imprisoned for a very short period of time. Montessori was released very quickly, and then the viceroys very graciously released Mario from prison to give him to her as her 70th birthday, which she celebrated <laughs> in, uh, um, in um, southern India. Um, I, I find the time they spent in India quite significant because it was really for the first time that the mother and son were able to work and collaborate very closely together for extended period of time without being disturbed by her many troubles and many engagements. And it was, they set up a school, both, um, um, they set up a school so that they could um, offer education to children. Sadly, there were not that many Indian children in that school. It was, again, mostly for uh, the uh, expat children. children. Uh, and uh, But the root of the whole idea of the uh, primary curriculum um, focused on the five grade lessons and focusing on closeness to nature and um, first-hand experiences really originated all in India and gave Mario materials to develop after mm. Montessori died um, and um, published them. So he grown to be um, a recognized Montessori figure in his own right through the work that they did in India. Um, I often wonder what it would have been like had life chance not caught, caught them up in India. 
Oh, that's really interesting. I didn't know that about um, that. That was really it was the opportunity for them to be together there during the war that that um, enabled him to carry it on to another generation, yes. so to speak. But there's a great affection I've noticed in in India and even amongst people from India for Montessori. They her time there must have had a much bigger impact than just the schools that she ran. Um, because I, I, I've noticed, I don't know if it's because if there's a, a, a sort of philosophical or spiritual kinship between the Indian culture and Montessori values, or was it historically maybe partly that she was there and that she um, you know, played an, an influential role in the formation of their education? Um, I, I don't know. I don't have an answer to that one. Um, I have often thought about the connection and the appeal of Montessori education to people in India and uh, Montessori's own understanding of um, the spiritual elements and spiritual values, which um, are so, so strongly rooted um, in the Indian culture. Yes, it's, I think you could probably find, because she's such a powerful humanist and optimist, you can probably find um, parallels between her thinking and all the great religions. I, I would think that um, there's nothing exclusive um, in a spiritual sense about her ideas. I think that every culture has found uh, that they can be completely at home with her um, ambitions and concepts about the human being, and that um, there was that there's an opportunity to to extend and interpret her work in every society. I, I don't think anyone has found, oh no, we can't do that. And I think what's really interesting now is that there's so many Montessori schools in China where um, where you have a secular state and very much a centralized economy. Um, with quite a lot of um, cultural allegiance expected of every individual, that even there they're finding a great affinity with um, Montessori. And I don't think they're just exploiting the effectiveness of the curriculum. I think they are actually discovering the importance of the values um, to, to, to child rearing in, in China as well. Um, I think this is an inter interesting trend which has evolved um, post um, the 20th century. I think that um, the main focus of the Montessori teacher training has been for so long on the use of the material and on the curriculum and on the classroom management and the values which, of course, underpin all of that, the human values which Montessori so strongly advocates, um, has been overlooked to some extent. And um, um, in the recent celebration of um, the 150 years of Montessori's birth, it was so interesting how many of the people who came to speak about her have talked about her focus on the spiritual development of the child, on the spiritual development um, of the teacher. And um, this is in a way something that most practitioners come to as they host their training. So the training focuses on the fundamentals, but those people who stay aligned with the Montessori pedagogy 
going into the 21st century are suddenly seeing a whole new aspect of Montessori, that whole idea of um, interrelatedness, um, interconnection, the importance of our capacity to adapt to new situations and uh, uh, the spiritual aspect of our existence, which really we are trying to search for as we have experienced the pandemic and we have evaluated um, what really matters to many of us. Yes, I think that there has been a very noticeable change um, in the 21st century and then again, of course, in, in recent months um, with a, a change of focus from the material benefits of something like the Montessori method to the um, the whole person, the benefits mm -hmm. for um, every individual and also um, for the social collective. I, th I think that there's been um, also a change in feminism. So in the 21st century, we've seen starting in the 90s and then coming into the last two decades, I would say um, more also a more spiritual approach to not just making sure that um, you know, there's the laws in place for equal pay and so on, but for making sure that every individual can become fulfilled in the way that gives them meaning and gives their life meaning, and that they're not just wanting to be um, the same as men, but women are wanting to be fulfilled in their own way, yeah. and every individual woman fulfilled in her own way. Um, and that they don't want to be given a gender and a role and a, you know, a role model to follow, but they want to find their own way of um, becoming fulfilled. And that feminism has actually matured in its third wave um, in the same way that Montessori has matured from being just uh, you know, a set of materials and methods that are very good at teaching maths and language to um, something which is about personal fulfillment. But don't you think that um, that personal fulfillment of women is quite a Western white model of um, acceptance of women? I'm so aware of so many women still being exploited and so many girls being sold to marriage so early. Um, you know, I, I think it will take still many more years for all the women in the world. I, I think that there are some very powerful voices across the globe for this newly found feminism, but I think that the reality of it is quite far away because of social structures, political structure, economic structures. And because of men. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, not to put it to find a point on it, I think uh, that men are part of the problem. I mean, as, you know, as any young man will tell you, it's not all that great being a man either. But um, I think there are things in the nature of men that actually make this progress difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, and that until we see change in men, um, which is might even be harder to achieve than change in women, um, that it will be, you know, it, the, the physical on the ground reality of a woman's experience in life, um, there's a kind of ceiling to its improvement because 
ultimately, um, you know, there's a lot of men in all, you know, continue to be in positions of power. The majority of, of decision makers seem to be men in society. Um, and, you know, men have a very split personality when it comes to women. They recognize women as, of course, people and individuals who have, you know, every right of, to pursue meaning and happiness and fulfillment. And on the other hand, they see women as useful and sometimes as objects and sometimes as um, social uh, levers that they can use. Um, sometimes um, their attitude to women is one which is purely biological and sometimes it's, you know, more uh, socially conditioned. And I think working on men would be an, an important um, process to go through in order to advance uh, feminism. So maybe we are looking back again at the childhood of these men and the people who are most influential in their life. To, to some extent, it is the role of women to help the boys become a whole person rather than fulfilling the cultural expectations of the community in which they are growing up. Um, yes, I think that's really powerful. I've always, you know, I see it sometimes in nurseries that we work with. I see head teachers who watch boys misbehave and just say, shrug their shoulders, oh, boys will be boys, and don't have the same expectations on boys, even as they do for the girls, because they just assume they're more wayward and impulsive and, you know, can't control themselves and so on. So I absolutely, you know, the Montessori philosophy of, you know, change humanity through the child um, is, is essential to, to helping men to evolve as well. Well, it's, I think that, uh, yes, it, um, it doesn't lie only in the hands of, um, of the Montessorians, but I think each Montessori teacher and the most of the workforce is female. So we all need to listen a little bit more. We all need to reflect and think about how we support the boys and how we support the girls, um, in our setting. Also how we, um, relate to the men who come to work in our settings. Um, I think all of this um, is an important part and parcel of uh, what will happen in the future. But I, we also need to remind every mother that um, their son will have a wife one day and that often we perpetuate the models that we have experienced in our childhood. So if we really want to change, we need to really think about how we bring our boys in a different way. It's shocking, isn't it, that when, I mean, because you've been a parent and then a grandparent, to hear yourself say the things that you heard when you were the child in those situations. Um, and that's it, so deep in us, what the things that are planted in childhood um, that it's very hard not to replicate them and just carry on the the same conditions that led to, um, you know, the disadvantages and poor opportunities that um, that resulted from that kind of upbringing. Yes, yes. And equally, we need to empower our girls from the very beginning to be aware of the fact that they have got agency 
that they are powerful, that they are capable, and um, that they can achieve what they would like to achieve. Um, there's always a way of finding uh, ways to achieve what we want to achieve. And being a mother is part and parcel of um, of our purpose yeah. in life. I, yeah. I think that seems like a really good place to leave it for, for this topic. And um, uh, we'll be back in the next episode, um, continuing to discuss feminism um, with uh, two more guests. Uh, so please tune in next time for more from um, My Montessori Life. Uh, thank you, David and Barbara. Thank you. Thank you.